TED Audio Collective. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm Mihir. And I'm Kristen Mugford. I'm a member of the finance faculty at Harvard Business School, and I teach a course on corporate restructuring. Kristen Mugford, welcome. Wonderful to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Felix, I've known Kristen a long, long time. Like, how long is a long, long time? It's embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) Kindergarten? It's in the decades. Let's put it this way. But like fine wine, we just improve with age. Exactly. So in addition to being one of the smartest people I know, she's also incredibly sunny and positive. And yet, Felix, she's spent her career thinking about bankruptcy I know, and distress. I know. <laughs> it feels, Kristen, like a total mismatch between a personality type and an area. <laughs> Does it ever feel like you should have like gone into venture investing or something like that? <laughs> no. I think the misnomer about bankruptcy is that bankruptcy I describe as about healing sick companies. So we often think about bankruptcy as liquidating businesses, but really it's about being a trauma surgeon for companies. So I like to be optimistic and believe that we can use bankruptcy to make companies healthier. See what she's just done me here? Exactly. the positive spin on bankruptcy. Exactly. I love it. (laughs) There's no way to do away with a sunny disposition. That's great. (laughs) And so I'm guessing, Kristen, you brought a sunny topic I brought a topic about bankruptcy. Yes. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to talking about one of the very hot topics in bankruptcy right now, which is about mass torts. So how companies are using bankruptcy to handle situations where their products have made people sick. So this is like Johnson & Johnson, Purdue Pharma. Exactly. Okay, great. And Felix, what did you bring? I would love to talk about luxury markets and what's happening in luxury markets, how prices move, how customer habits change. Nice. Let's do it. From bankruptcy to Birkin bags. (laughs) (laughs) So, Kristen, mass torts and bankruptcy, what's the connection exactly? So when we think about bankruptcy, we often envision companies that are having really significant financial problems. They're losing money. They're running out of cash. Mm -hmm. I want to talk today about 
a different way that companies are using bankruptcy. And I'm really curious to get your thoughts on it. And this has to do with all the lawsuits that arise when it turns out that a company's products hurt people. Mm. So one good example of this is Johnson & Johnson. So Johnson & Johnson had lots of lawsuits that alleged that their talcum powder caused cancer. Right. They've won some of these suits. They've lost some of these suits. But the number of suits is now in the thousands. So what Johnson & Johnson decided to do is they decided to take all these claims, put them in a subsidiary, and then file this subsidiary for bankruptcy. Right. So the current proposal is that Johnson & Johnson is going to put some money in this subsidiary, about $9 billion, and the money is going to be used to pay these claims. But a lot of people are asking the question, is this use of bankruptcy okay? Mm-hmm. And just to be clear, Kristen, Johnson & Johnson is nowhere close to being bankrupt. Correct. It's kind of got the feel of opportunistic bankruptcy in a way. Exactly. And it's also been used in these other high-profile cases, including Purdue Pharma for opioids, and even in situations like the Boy Scouts of America and USA Olympics with sexual abuse. So it's really widespread in many, many ways. Correct. And there's a long history of it with asbestos. There were many companies that filed for bankruptcy, where they filed the whole company, like W.R. Grace, for asbestos. It's more new that we're seeing companies use it opportunistically to just file a subsidiary, to not file the entire company and use this as a tool to take care of thousands of lawsuits. Maybe we can begin by comparing a typical outcome under bankruptcy and a typical outcome under the more traditional mass tort system. Sometimes mass torts can result in just extraordinary rewards for a small group of people. So I'm thinking in Johnson & Johnson's case, there was a Missouri verdict that awarded $2.1 billion to 20 women. Just extraordinary. While this feels like a really great story, I think there are two problems with it. The first problem is the unpredictability of these outcomes for companies. It is super, super difficult to plan. This feels like a very generous award, but other victims, they lose because, say, the jury was not quite as favorably inclined and they get nothing at all. One of the advantages, I think, of bankruptcy procedures is that generally these procedures are pretty good at divvying up the awards in an even manner. So it doesn't matter so much, did you file early? Did you file late? What people get feels like a fair outcome. Mm. Yeah, this is exactly right. One of the big benefits is it's seen as really fair and equitable, that there is this schedule. And so everyone with similar medical problems would get the same payout. And in a way, this is all kind of a reflection of how screwed up the mass tort system is. If you could have all those people go at the same time through some kind of a class action mechanism, yeah. then that would be good in some sense. But it turns out that's really hard to do. And so what the bankruptcy procedure effectively allows you to do is immediately aggregate all those claims and stop all the gaming about timing and stop all the gaming about who's in and who's out. In all those ways, it sounds great. <laughs> and I confess, there's a part of me which feels like, yeah, this is right. This feels good. The problem, I guess, is two things. One is you are getting a little bit of opportunism here. Mm -hmm. So you're getting away from jury trials because bankruptcies are judges and jury trials are going to be better for like the plaintiffs than like a bankruptcy judge is going to be because that's just something that happens in these situations. 
And then the second is you can kind of, in bankruptcy land, be a little bit more opportunistic about the kind of venue you get or the judge you get. Yeah, it's a little bit of a yes. small world. And then finally, I think it doesn't really provide the sense of justice that some of these people are looking for. <laughs> and that's a very vague idea, but I think that's why it feels icky. So mm. there's every part of me feels like this is great, but there is an ickiness to it underneath it all. Yeah. I don't know, yeah. Chris, yeah, yeah. you think about this more than we do. What do you make of this? I think this justice point is a really important one. And this is where Purdue Pharmaceuticals comes into the story. As you referenced earlier, Felix, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, it's a private company. It makes OxyContin. OxyContin is an opioid that played a really central role in the huge, tragic opioid crisis in the United States. And Purdue had tens of thousands of lawsuits, so they filed for bankruptcy. And in this case, it's not like Johnson & Johnson, where it's worth $400 billion. The creditors of Purdue agreed to turn the whole company over to the creditors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What makes it interesting is the Sackler family. The Sackler family owns Purdue. They were part of its management. They also are facing thousands of lawsuits. And they agreed to contribute about $6 billion of their wealth in exchange for a release. And this is where there's a lot of debate. This goes back to Mahir's point about justice. Because part of the issue is is that for families who were impacted by the opioid crisis, they often care about justice sometimes more than money. And the bankruptcy process is really about taking harm and putting it into dollars and cents. And in the case of the Sacklers, what a lot of people want is for the Sacklers to go to trial, to have right. to mm-hmm, have mm-hmm. all the disclosure that comes with that, to have yeah. them have to face a jury. And it feels like we're getting all these economic benefits from bankruptcy, but we're losing some of this justice in the process. Mm-hmm. So I agree the justice point is really important, but even more narrowly financial, I'm not always sure if bankruptcy is really the right tool to use for the mm-hmm. following reason. You transfer all the liabilities to a subsidiary, and if the subsidiary has zero assets, there's nothing to distribute. Right. In the Johnson & Johnson case, where I think they're a little more fair-minded is probably the right thing to say. In their first attempt to do this procedure, they are very generous with the subsidiary. They promise that the subsidiary can draw on up to $60 billion in funds. And then if that's needed, they would distribute these funds among the victims. That is shut down by a court (laughs) saying, well, if the subsidiary can draw on $60 billion, how on earth can it be bankrupt? It's not bankrupt. And so then the solution is this strange outcome where now they're trying to file for bankruptcy again, but this time they're only providing funds of $9 billion. Even abstracting from the justice question, the big unresolved question is, how much money should be available to settle these claims in the first place? Who gets to decide how it's divided up? The first way to solve that is to have, for example, the attorney generals who brought the case against Purdue have to sign off on going into this bankruptcy. And similarly with the J&J claimants, they had to kind of sign off on this idea. So that'll help a little. On your point about day in court, Kristen, there is this piece that I think is different, right? There are these weird third-party releases that you highlighted, Kristen. Mm -hmm. It only happens in bankruptcy. We basically immunize the Sackler family against any civil claims against them if they go and do this for $6 billion spending on public health campaigns. I don't know. That was kind of gross, I thought. 
I kind of get the idea of J&J doing this thing. And then maybe we have to watch out, Felix, for making sure that it's done in a way that the claimants want. But the third-party release is super weird to me. And that's the part I'm not sure if I like. And it only happens in bankruptcy land where you can just say, we're releasing all these people from any liability claims forever. What makes the Purdue case also complicated is that the Sacklers have disclosed that their net worth is around $11 billion and they're contributing about six of it. Right. So a lot of people would say, well, why not eight? Why not 10? Why not all of it? There's a lot who say like they really caused a lot of harm. Well, the challenge is that the Sackler family is a big family. They live all over the world. Their money is held in trusts. And so there's this thorny question of how much money realistically could we get if we went through this whole mass tort trial process? Yes, we might feel like we get more justice, but maybe in bankruptcy, they're willing to come forward with more money because they get this third-party release. Although it feels icky, it actually is a way to contribute more money that net-net we end up with a bigger pot to be able to put towards these claims. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The other interesting question, which you've hit on a bit here, Mihir, is who wins in this bankruptcy? So we talked about how maybe it's better for the claimants. It's certainly better for lawyers. The one winner always in bankruptcy (laughs) is lawyers because everybody (laughs) has a lawyer. Their lawyers have lawyers. It's great to be a bankruptcy lawyer. Yes. But what's interesting if you look at asbestos is very often you see the equity trade up. And you ask, well, why is that? Well, that's because we've now capped the liability. There's certainty. Yeah. So it has these immediate financial consequences, and in particular the split with the lawyers that you highlighted, Christine. But also, if you think about why do we have mass torts in the first place? Presumably, the most important effect is to make sure that companies are really careful before they release products, yes. to make sure that no one gets sick, that no one dies. And just like the equity trade-up, you can imagine that now knowing that, oh my God, the worst of all circumstances where the company, the entire company is pushed into bankruptcy because we made a horrible mistake, Mm -hmm. the moment that single biggest worry goes out the window, you can imagine a cynical company now thinking, well, mass horse used to be a really big problem. And as a result, we made extra sure that all our products were safe. And now that's no longer the case. It's interesting, Felix. In a way, you're arguing, not to put words in your mouth, that the increased variability of outcomes under current mass tort claims is beneficial. You're going to be even more cautious than you would have been otherwise. That's interesting. I mean, I think, just to be clear, no one's going to get off scot-free here. The plaintiffs have to sign up to do this. And absolutely really bad stuff happening where you create this little box and you put a penny in it and then you put all the liabilities in it. That's totally gross. If you have guardrails against that, it feels like it's just going to be more certain, which has got to be in this a benefit to everybody, because it's not just capping the liability. Capping liability is the thing that makes everybody get worried when we use that language. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it is really about the certainty, because I think, Felix, you're making a case for variability. Yeah. But usually we make cases for certainty over variability. Can I push back against that? So if you look at the details of the JNJ case, where do the $9 billion come from? 
that's a negotiation between J&J and the law firms where their target number was to have something like 75% of the representatives of the claimants be in agreement with the $9 billion figure. Right. I think you're right in that it produces more certainty and that might be valuable to all the parties. But at the same time, Given the incentive structure, given just how lucrative this is for the law firms that are involved in this, are the incentives really that they're leaning out the window? Or isn't it best for these law firms to say, look, if we can do this relatively quickly and we get paid and the pay is not so bad, they actually thought it could be up to $60 billion. And now if all works well, they get away with nine. That's more than just reducing variability. That reduces the mean and variability at one at the same time. Yeah. All those crazy incentives are there in the mass tort situation, too. Yeah, Lawyers that's true. making yes, weird decisions. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. I yeah. think one of the challenges, you keep hitting at a 75% point. That's because you typically need 75% of these mass tort claimants to agree in a bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So you could say one benefit is we're going to pick the outcome that the 75% of the majority agree with. But that means 25% don't get their day in court, that they vote no. And there is some trade-off here in choosing a little more certainty, maybe a little more equity. But in doing so, we kind of take away what feels like this basic right to have your day in court as an individual in this mass tort system. And there's some discomfort there, I think. Right. Personally, I think while bankruptcy is not a perfect process, it's the best we've got. So in a choice between using this tool and making sure that we have lots of people agreeing to the plan, that we're really thinking about future claimants, then I think it's a lot better than the vagaries of the mass tort system. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Felix, I can't quite tell. Are you wearing Gucci or Hermes? (laughs) You should know. I would never wear Gucci. (laughs) Sorry. Okay, Felix, you want to talk luxury brands. I know we don't generally share investment advice on After Hours, but here's a piece of advice if you would like to make some money quickly. You buy an Hermes Birkin 25 bag for $10,000. 
you then sell it to Privé Porter for $16,000, just a couple of minutes after you bought it. And then they will turn around and sell it on Instagram for $24,000. <laughs> Prices in luxury are completely fascinating. Yeah. This feels a little bit like the Taylor Swift concert drama mm -hmm. where there isn't much available. And then you get these strange price movements. But it's also interesting relative to Chanel. They have used this opportunity to really increase prices dramatically throughout the pandemic, interestingly. And then a house like Hermes, you see much more stability in prices. What do you make of what's going on in luxury? Why do we see this strange pricing behavior? Chanel and Hermes have taken different pricing paths, but both companies have had tremendous financial results. Yeah. It's astonishing to me when you think about the world's richest man is no longer Jeff Bezos. It's not Elon Musk. It's Bernard Arnault, yeah. who's the head of LVMH, a luxury brand. So there's something going on here more broadly that the valuation of these companies are skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. I think in April, LVMH became the first European company to hit $500 billion in market cap. Astonishing, yes. Astonishing that of all <laughs> European companies, that would be the one that would not have been my guess. And this is happening at a time when 2022, the stock market didn't do particularly well. China is a big customer of luxury goods. People were in lockdown. And yet the financial performance of these luxury brands just keeps going up and up and up. And what do you make of it, Kristen? I mean, is this some kind of a bubble in bags and stocks or... Do you buy into the underlying economics of these things? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. So first is just basics of supply and demand. So we've mm -hmm. seen luxury just explode over the last decade. Some of that is the rise of the Chinese consumer who is buying both at home and abroad. And when we think about some categories of luxury, like fine wine, we're not making any more 20-year-old burgundy. So when you have more demand and no more supply, the prices are effectively going to go up. So that's a piece of this. But it also feels like there's something know, maybe different culturally happening. Mm -hmm. I confess that when I first started to think about these luxury brands, it feels like it's all very unsustainable. But as I've thought about it more, I've come to think of it as being quite reasonable. Mm -hmm. If you think of it as in the broader sweep of history, especially in the handbag market, for example, just to take one market, you know, you have women exerting more purchasing power and more rights over household income within households and across households. And they're choosing these kinds of goods to spend money on. And if I think back to my mother, she had these saris and she had jewelry and she had some gold and she had china and we had like these porcelain yadros. I don't know. All these collectibles. Mm -hmm. People don't do any of those things anymore in the same way. Effectively, it doesn't feel in some sense to be that crazy. If you think about all that spending power being channeled towards a new set of goods, which is what the handbag market is really, right? Like a really you know novel category. It all feels actually quite rational. And in a way, the puzzle is why there aren't more verticals that allow these folks to like channel that consumption. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Felix, what do you make of it? Yes, I agree. I think changes in the income distribution definitely have a 
big role to play here that it's just more people who are now at levels of income that you can afford a ten thousand twenty thousand a hundred thousand dollar handbag which seems crazy but there are some people who are willing to spend that much i think there's two other things that i find really interesting the first one is there is this trend towards younger people buying luxury earlier in their lives. Yeah, It's very pronounced now with millennials. Part of that is probably, I'm guessing, the pandemic where you couldn't do the luxury experiences so easily. And so you gravitated from experiences towards products like the rest of the economy. Right, And then what goes hand in hand is these really unusual combinations of purchase decisions. Patterns of consumption broke down in interesting ways. So people would order pizza and drink champagne. People would fly coach and then stay at the best hotel in town. That was super, super expensive. And I think this loosening of the category coupled with the pandemic and yeah. lots of people having the kinds of income that is necessary to play in this market. Those three things, in some sense, conspire to now produce, as you point out, Kristen, just much more demand than we have supply. It feels like, Felix, though you're telling a little bit of a story about people wanting to treat themselves coming out of the pandemic. Yes, I think that's right. We were all locked up and we deserve something luxurious as a reward for having survived the pandemic. But then that would say that what we're seeing is temporary. And my instinct is, is that there's something more fundamental going on here. Mm. I think to your point here about collectibles, these companies have been brilliant in tapping into the desire of humans to collect things. So whether it was baseball cards or you talked about China or figurines, they market in a way to make the thrill of the hunt very exciting. Mm -hmm. You can't walk into an Hermes store and buy a Birkin bag. There's a whole elaborate dance that goes on of building a relationship <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and hopefully getting offered one. And it's really creating this excitement around collecting. Part of what you're seeing is that luxury has just gotten better at being a collectible than perhaps it has been in the past. I think what's particularly interesting to me about that and Felix's point about this loosening, which I think is a very deep point about consumers are no longer like the Upper East Side socialite who is going down Park Avenue to visit mm -hmm. Hermes, but there's a lot of different people buying. But the amazing thing is, alongside that loosening, they've preserved their elite status. Yes. That is like a real trick that these people have figured out. Yeah. <laughs> so you have this loosening, which is effectively, in some sense, what might be characterized as kind of going down market, going down to less elite buyers. And yet, the elite status of these goods only gets greater and greater. Now, maybe that's how the collectibles kind of feed into this, right. Kristen. But it feels like the game that they've figured out is, how do you expand the customer base but not lose the elite status? And they just have done it just incredibly well. In part, this is also supported by what's happening at the other side of the market, if you will, in the market for super fake bags and super fake products. Even experts are at a loss to tell the difference between what's the right thing and what's not the right thing. So how should you respond as a company if all of a sudden someone can produce what you produce at a level of quality that people can't tell apart? One intuition that I have is you would raise prices dramatically. 
because in the end, obviously no one really cares about the functional attributes of these products. It's more about recognizing each other, recognizing who is in my group, who is not in my group. And that's not just a single signal like the handbag. That is the handbag and the dress and the restaurant that you eat at and the hotel you stay in and the car that drives up to the hotel. It's a collection of signals. And as always, when you think about optimal price discrimination, if you get fakes in your market, what you really want to hold on to is the really valuable part of the market where people care about these collections of signals. Yeah. The tricky thing about that, Felix, though, is I think that sounds right. But in a way, they are widening the customer base, to your point earlier. Mm. They're doing both things kind of remarkably. <laughs> and in a way, with these counterfeits getting so good, and my understanding is the counterfeits are amazing. Amazing. Which then makes you think that this good, it's partly about the consumption experience, which is I get to carry around my Birkin bag. But in fact, it's also about the act of purchasing. Yeah. The act of purchasing itself has gained so much value. Mm -hmm. That's really fascinating to me, that actually what we're buying is the act of purchasing as opposed to the good. Or maybe the customer values the authenticity. Yeah. Would you buy a painting that you knew was counterfeit? Fair enough. Yeah, fair There's enough. There's something yeah. about having the authentic thing and there's an appreciation of the craftsmanship. Many of these bags and watches are handmade. Yes. There's an appreciation that these are beautiful works of craftsmanship. And maybe the customer continues to appreciate that. Yeah. The other part of this space that's fascinating is that places like LVMH and Keurig, for that matter, are effectively conglomerates. Mm -hmm. By that, I mean they have more than 100 houses in the case of LVMH that are coexisting under a common roof. And usually conglomerates don't work. Yeah. <laughs> and somehow Bernard Arnault has figured out how to make it work. Why do you think conglomerates work in the luxury space? One of the theories why it's successful has to do with talent in the industry. Think about if you work at LVMH and say you get a little tired of the brand that you're working at. That list of other brands where you would likely be comfortable that list <laughs> probably includes many of the brands that are also owned by LVMH. So there's a little bit of a walled garden phenomenon where the best opportunities now sit inside these conglomerates. It's very hard for an upstart luxury brand to get the kind of cachet, to get the kind of reputation that some of these older names have. And as a result, the very best people, I think they often gravitate towards the brands that are owned by the big guys and as a result do better work. There's a little bit of research from fashion and luxury insiders, annual judgments about who comes up with the most amazing products. And what you see there, at least if you believe these judgments, much of the best forms of creativity, the best ideas, the best products that are launched in a particular year, they come out of these really big conglomerates. I guess when I think about these, I almost am reminded of Procter & Gamble. Are these conglomerates <laughs> or are these just companies that do a great job of managing a portfolio of consumer brands and share some synergies behind the scenes, yep. and that this is just the P&G of today, but more expensive and in Europe. Wow. I'm going to go with your logic a little bit, Kristen, in the following sense, which is 
the analogy is not shelf space, which is one of the things PNG does really well is get shelf yeah. space. Mm-hmm. The story about LVMH, I think, is also real estate. Mm-hmm. If you're one financial center in Shanghai and you can bundle a lot of brands and then you get really, really cheap real estate. Yeah. <laughs> and so that bundling is also really, really powerful, just like PNG trying to get a lot of shelf space. So I think that's the other source of their power in these settings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think we need to have some After Hours merch. <laughs> Felix, if you had to create some After Hours merch, what would you make it? I'm Swiss, so probably a watch. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> a beautiful timepiece. Yeah. What do you think, Kristen? Look, the lesson learned from luxury is it's all about collaborations and footwear, sneakers. So what you want to do is go figure out how to get after hours on a Air Force One and you're going to be great. I love it. There we go. How about you, Mihir? What's your best idea for a luxury item? I just think the handbag market is too good. You just got to go where the money is. I would go to the handbag market and like a nice little AH logo. Yeah. And I would see you walk around with an after hours (laughs) handbag. Yeah. Who knows? So Kristen, recommendations, what do you have for us? Okay, my recommendation is Formula One. Now, many of your listeners are already huge fans of this, but this is a recommendation for anyone who was like me 18 months ago and said, you've got to be kidding me. This involves cars racing around a track. (laughs) I love Formula One. And yes, my entry was the Netflix show Drive to Survive. I never would have expected, any of you who know me, that this would be my passion. (laughs) It is this exciting intersection of science and sports. Mm -hmm. You have all these engineers and aerodynamicists who are developing the fastest cars in the world. And then you have drivers that show incredible athleticism and pull six Gs around corners for two hours at a time. They do pit stops in two seconds. There's race strategy and unpredictability. <laughs> It's awesome. Check it out. Wow. Growing up, my brother was a big Formula One fan. We didn't really watch that much television during the day, but I have these memories of Sundays with the sound of engines somewhere in the yes. background. This is me now. All my friends are completely <laughs> flummoxed that I, of all people, have become a Formula One addict, but I am now drafting My daughters, my friends, we're all into it. <laughs> And all listeners on After Hours. Exactly. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Felix, what did you got? Have you watched American Born Chinese? No. No. It is an amazing show. So it's a coming of age story of a second generation Chinese teenager going to high school, trying to adjust. It's mostly a white high school. He's one of the very few Chinese students And then it's mixed with everything else you associate with Chinese culture. So there's martial arts, there is mythology. It borrows heavily from the 16th century novel Journey to the West. And it jumps back and forth in completely unpredictable ways. Sometimes the gods are in godland and in garb. And then next thing you know, the gods show up for a fight in the high school and Part of, I think, what's really fascinating is it doesn't 
take time to explain elements of Chinese culture. It just takes them as given. And the dialogue is sometimes in Chinese, sometimes in English, and it goes back and forth in unpredictable ways. The storyline is really hard to follow because it jumps in various directions at any moment in time, but it's such a joy to watch. Hmm. Sometimes there's the show where I have a sense oh my God, they created this just for me. <laughs> and this right. is definitely one of these shows where I felt like, oh my God, where have you been all my life? It is amazing. So American-born Chinese on Disney+. Plus. That sounds Fantastic. Great. That sounds great. I was going to go with the new season of Happy Valley, but our last conversation triggered a thought that I just want to instead use, although I did kind of sneak in the American launch of Happy Valley. Yes, of course. <laughs> but my real recommendation is, you know, loyalty programs are wonderful. I like loyalty programs a lot, but they've gotten so tired and boring. And I recently flew on KLM. Mm. And I don't know if you've ever flown on KLM in business class, but they give you a little Delft house oh. filled with Dutch gin. And they have about 110 of them. And that every time you take a trip, you get to pick one. There is no way to purchase them. So they've become collectibles. And I have to tell you, First, it brought back this deep memory, which is that my father, when he would travel, would bring them home. Right. And I remember that. And it created this just intense feeling when I was able to pick my own. So this is an old program. It's 70 years old. Wow. And oh, they have continued oh. it to today. Yeah. And I just thought, what a spectacular way to think about a loyalty program. And what a way to create luxury, Kristen, to your earlier point, and to create a collectible and really engender, to our conversation last week, Felix, brand loyalty. So shout out to KLM for like keeping this up. And for anybody in charge of a loyalty program, really think hard about how to do something that goes beyond like miles. It gives you this <laughs> moment of delight in the sky. Totally. So that's my shout out is to KLM for their little Delft House program. Excellent. Perfect. And this was it for tonight. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective. <laughs>